I'm glad you all made it through the snow. I grew up in southern New Mexico, right right on the border, the real border, as I always say. Uh, and I got pictures from my parents this last week. My mom runs a kindergarten, and she sent me pictures. They had almost an inch of snow this last week, and they closed school and everything. So I'm kind of looking forward to sending pictures of today and saying, huh, you closed for that? Anyway, uh, I want for a moment to think about love, for us to think about love and our loves, not the warm, fuzzy kind of thing we call falling in love or being in love. I really like that warm, fuzzy feeling. I'm a fan of that, so don't take this as dismissing that in any way, but I want to think about something else. Loves, the loves that drive us, the loves that pull us, our longings, the things that drive our decisions, that shape our fears. We love peace, perhaps, or we like to say we do, and so we hate conflict because our love of peace drives us towards hating this or that, and these are the kinds of loves that I want to think about. We act or want to act in certain ways because of the things that we love. St. Augustine talked about loves in this kind of way. It's Think of it like a magnet. I imagine it like taking a part of your heart and you kind of throw it and it attaches to something, and then that pulls you towards the thing in whatever ways and whatever, however you live your life. You're pulled towards it. And that's part, that part of our heart sticks there. It doesn't matter. It could be peace. It could be fame. Could be comfort, safety, acceptance. Could be any number, hundreds of things. It pulls our emotions, pulls our decisions, the practices of our lives, the way we structure our lives and spend our time. Our loves shape the things we do and shape who we are. I've been reading through uh, the last while the Harry Potter books with my kids. They're at that age. Uh, If you know those books or those films, uh, you may remember at one point we find Harry standing in an old storage room in front of a certain mirror, the Mirror of Erised. And Dumbledore, who's the headmaster of the school, it's a magical place if you're unfamiliar with Harry Potter, uh, Dumbledore asks him, do you know what magic is in that mirror? Because every time Harry looks, he sees himself with his family, his parents whom he's never known. Harry thought and said slowly, it shows us what we want, whatever we want. Well, yes and no, said Dumbledore quietly. It shows us nothing more or less than the deepest, most desperate desire of our hearts. Now, what I love about the scene isn't what Rowling does with it. I love, I love how pregnant that idea is. A mirror that shows you not what you want to see, Not what you want to love, but what you actually do love, above all things. What is it that you really desire? The thing to which you have given your heart, your loves. And that's what gives it an interesting edge, right? Would you want to stand in front of it? I mean, part of the saving grace of the mirror, I think, (laughs) the way I imagine it is, when you're standing in front of it, nobody else can see what's there. And maybe that's a good thing. Would you want to stand in front of it and have exposed, even just to yourself, what it is that you really long for? 
Now, I say all of this as an introduction to help us understand what I think Paul is after in the reading 1 Corinthians. Uh, Pastor Rick told me that last week he said it was going to be the last sermon on 1 Corinthians. So while I hate to make a liar of your pastor, uh, I can't pass up this text. In particular, there's, there's this great text, this sentence that Paul declares at the outset that I think any preacher just goes, I have to preach on that, right? I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. You can't ask a preacher to pass that up. So uh, I know if you were here last week, Pastor Rick said, talked about ways of viewing crucifixion in the ancient world. It was not a nice, cozy thing to talk about. And Corinth was a cultured city. Corinth was proud of its relationship to Rome, proud of its knowledge, its ability to attract teachers of all sorts, rhetors, speakers, orators. Uh, for Paul to come in and start talking about this man who back in the backwaters of the empire was crucified publicly, put to shame in front of everybody, and hey, you should be his disciple, was not just a weird idea. It was jarring. I have no doubt that for every single person Paul talked to in Corinth, Jew or Gentile, didn't matter, this kind of proclamation was utterly unique. We grow used to this. Even for those of you who maybe didn't grow up in a church, you're used to crosses being seen, Jesus being talked about as crucified maybe. Nobody was familiar with this in the ancient world. Paul walking into Corinth and saying, you should be a disciple of this crucified man was not something they went, oh yeah, well, I've heard of that before. There's a lot of people. You what? <laughs> it's a jarring declaration. More than that, and part of the point here, Paul had no interest in the kinds of things that counted as wisdom and wise speech, sophistry, as we say, in Corinth, and that wider cultural moment. Paul uses the term wisdom a lot in the opening chapters of 1 Corinthians. Two ideas that govern the whole of this letter that the Corinthians loved, that they had set their heart upon. One was wisdom. The word is Sophia. We get the word philosophia, lovers of wisdom. Well, they were philosophers, or at least they loved the idea of wisdom. And the other is that they loved being spiritual. And throughout the letter, part of what Paul does is he says, oh, you do. Well, what really counts as being wise? What counts as being spiritual? If God has come in Christ and was put to death and raised for us, then what counts as wisdom? To call people to discipleship under a man crucified was not seen as wisdom. And the way that Paul talked about it, he didn't seem to care about all the artistry of articulate speech and eloquence. I imagine a marketing director or a PR person coming up to Paul while he's preaching in Corinth, right? And maybe this governed part of the letter. Some PR guy actually sought him out, wrote him a letter. Look, Paul, uh, Paul, I like you a lot, right? You're a great guy. Uh, but you've got to tone down the whole crucifixion thing just, just a bit. I know it's important to you. I get that. I'm not saying erase it completely. Uh, 
But you're in Corinth. You've got to understand, here in Corinth, that that just doesn't go over very well. We're proud of lots of good things, articulate speeches, passionate speeches, the kind of eloquence you find in Rome. We've got some of it here, and we love it. But you keep putting all these pictures of a cross on your Instagram, and it's just, it's not going to work. Not here. Not in Corinth. Look, this is what you need to do, Paul. Take some of those really sweet things that Jesus said and just put those up. Those will sell. (laughs) Give passion speeches. Those will sell. We can sell that. This cross bit, let's tone it down. Paul doesn't want to play those games, right? He says, look, I walked into Corinth and I determined, I made up my mind I am not going to play those games. He doesn't say, I couldn't. He doesn't say, well, I'm just not trained in those ways. He says, look, I made up my mind. I'm not going to play those games. I am going to know one thing. Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's it. That's enough for me. And that's the amazing point, of course, is that is actually enough He's reminding them what is actually worth loving. I know you've set your heart on these other things. The perception of being wise. People seeing you as wise. There's one thing worth loving. And that's enough. If they stood in front of the mirror of Ereset, he's like, I want you to see yourself there with Christ and nothing next to you. And that's not what you see. I don't want to see you there with your colleagues around you patting you on the back for how clever you are, for how wise you are. I don't want you to love that. Now, I love philosophy. I actually do. I studied philosophy. That's my undergrad work was in philosophy. I think Christian thought is compelling. And when we start talking about all kinds of things normally relegated to the philosophy department, like what justice actually is, or uh, what it means to live the good life, what it means to be human, all of these questions, the Christian faith has a lot to say to those questions. That's true. They're good questions. They're important questions, and not when set next to Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's like... uh, Uh, Sorry, lost my place here. (laughs) It's like a long discourse with somebody on the benefits of hygiene. Really good things while you're taking fire in a foxhole. More than that, it's easy for our loves to be shaped, to be molded by all kinds of things that are not Jesus Christ and him crucified. Did you know that the Corinthian church wasn't the last to love wisdom? and being seen as wise, wasn't afraid. They were the, weren't the last ones to be afraid of how the world would see their worship of Jesus Christ crucified. Pride seems to be at the heart of the Corinthian struggle, right? A desire to look a certain kind of way didn't die with the Corinthians. Loving to appear wise becoming more important than loving wisdom. 
true wisdom. We fear rejection. We love being accepted. We feel this deep desire to be accepted, to be included, to be affirmed. And so we make it an idol. We throw a piece of our heart onto it and let it pull us. Not long ago, I spoke to a man. uh, We're going to call him John. It's not his real name. But he confessed that he's been living with so much fear around being known, people seeing him. He has constructed pretty meticulously multiple lives that he lives into in various cities. Different people involved in the different lives, none of whom can know him. He's constructed his whole world around this this fear of fully being known, which means, of course, we can only be loved insofar as we're known. But he's so afraid and feels trapped in it. He's lived in bondage to people seeing something when they see him instead of seeing him. Fear and pride often hang out together. They're good pals. Paul was determined to know nothing else but Jesus Christ and him crucified and to say so because he knows how easy it is to live in bondage, which is idolatry, to set our hearts and have them drawn to these other things. If the world mocked, then it mocked. And by the way, the world mocked. Listen to this from Celsus, one of the early educated philosophers of the ancient Rome, one of the early critics of the Christian faith. He's mocking Christianity, and he writes, Their injunctions are like this. Let no one educate it. No one wise, no one sensible draw near, for these abilities are thought to be evils. But anyone ignorant, anyone stupid, anyone uneducated, anyone who is a child, let him come boldly. He's mocking here. By the fact that they themselves admit that these people are worthy of their God, they show that they want and are able to convince only the foolish dishonorable and stupid, only slaves, women, and children. Now, Celsus knew very well that there were a lot of educated people being convinced, but he looks at it and just mocks. That's not wisdom. Do you imagine Paul cared about what Celsus said? That's actually exactly what he's writing about. A lover of wisdom, so-called, standing and mocking, I think he was okay with that. Or another great rhetorician. I'm going to pile these on a little bit. A guy named Marcus Cornelius Fronto. He was actually the tutor for Marcus Aurelius, who would become one of the Roman emperors. Again, he dismissed the Christian faith this way. The religion of the Christians is foolish inasmuch as they worship a crucified man. And they even worship the instrument of the punishment itself, talking about a cross. I think Paul would have loved that. (laughs) You're going to dismiss us because we worship Jesus Christ and him crucified. Okay. (laughs) That's all we have to proclaim. That's what we have to proclaim. 
Because the cross of Christ, and for Paul that's always tied to the resurrection, it's the risen Christ who was crucified, is the one hope of the world. What is a pat on the back next to death being conquered? I think I'll take this one over here. One of my favorite little glimpses into the early Christian world was found in the late 19th century. Uh, a wall in a house outside of Rome was uncovered in uh, archaeology. It's a, a little piece of graffiti on the side of the wall from around 200 A.D. It seems to have been some kind of school. And young students then, like young students now, are not always the kindest to one another. Uh, and at some point, a little boy named Alexamenos was in the school and was teased for being a Christian. And there on the wall, preserved to this day, is a little piece of graffiti that was scribbled about him. What, what the picture shows is uh, a man with the head of a donkey being crucified on a cross. And at the foot of the cross is a little boy with his arms outstretched. And written around it says, Alexamenos worships his God. I love that picture, actually. Because I picture little Alexamenos feeling excluded. And obviously still okay with being associated with Jesus Christ crucified. We know nothing about Alexamenos except that he knew Jesus Christ and him crucified. <laughs> what a great testimony to that little boy. The desire to look in the mirror of Ariset and see ourselves with Christ and nothing else is why Christians love the cross. They're not afraid to put crosses, the symbol of public execution, everywhere. We've lost some of that because we're so used to it. But once in a while, it's good for us to remember. It would be weird to see somebody putting up little electric chairs all over their house. It would feel distasteful. A gallows? It would feel gruesome, icky. But that's what we do. Now, Fronto, Marcus Aurelius' tutor, was wrong thinking we worship the instrument of Christ's punishment. But I can get why he says that. We don't worship the cross, but we put it everywhere. We put it on our walls and our buildings. We have big ones. We have smaller ones. We put it on the top of our buildings. We build our churches in the shape of a cross sometimes. We put it around our necks. We put it on our fingers. We put up paintings of it, sculptures of it. We trace the sign of the cross on our bodies. It's an ancient practice. It's done in all kinds of ways. Listen to Irenaeus, one of the early church fathers. He, he was writing this around the same time as Alexamenos. Uh, just curiously. Uh, Irenaeus says, At every forward step and movement, at every going in and out, when we put on our clothes and our shoes, when we bathe, when we sit at the table, when we light the lamps, when we sit on the couch, on a seat, in all the ordinary actions of daily life, we trace on our forehead the sign of the cross. <laughs> He's overstating a little bit, but a lot of that idea has persisted. The sign given on our foreheads at baptism, you are Christ's. 
And that's enough. That's all that you need. We don't outgrow our baptism. We trace on our bodies the reminder and seal of where our hearts most truly ought to be, where we want our hearts to be. And sometimes we have to remind ourselves. And so we put our crosses wherever we can and we trace on our bodies the sign of the cross. This man who has too many lives built up and can't find his way out of them He looks in the mirror of Erised, and I'm not sure that mirror has enough room for the number of people he longs to pat him on the back. Though maybe what he would see if his desires were made truest is just one person finally seeing him, right? But setting down our loves and putting on this one love is the great work of the Christian church. It's why Paul was happy to be deemed a backwater's ignorant fool, despite his education. He didn't need approval and validation from the philosophers. He knew Jesus Christ. Not, I knew about Jesus Christ. I knew Jesus Christ and him crucified. And knew him to be enough. It's the life into which Paul invited the Corinthians and the life to which he's inviting us. Not once. When I first got there, I determined to know nothing, but now now it's okay to know lots of things. No. Again and again and again, just know this thing. Friends, there is nothing more important to know next to which everything else fades. It has to, even when it's hard. And so we do everything we can to remind ourselves again and again and again that it is enough that I belong to Christ. He belongs to me. I invite you this morning, when we come to the Eucharist, to remember we're coming forward to take hold of Christ and to remind yourself this is what I need and nothing else. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. For the hope of resurrection and new life. For the grace of the forgiveness of our sins. And Father, I pray that you would impress on us who Christ is and help us to know him. We ask it in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.